Good morning. My name is Corinne, and I serve in guest services and also head up our meals ministry. And um, so glad you're here today. Happy Father's Day. We are reading Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to be on page 573 if you haven't found it yet. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing today? Oh, sorry about that, Jansen. Happy Father's Day. Uh, with Father's Day, I feel like everyone up that's gone up here said Happy Father's Day. I don't think the mother's got the same reception, so I don't know what to make of that. But Father's Day... Uh, for some people, is like a great reminder of the gift you've been given in your father, in your ability to be a father to others. Um, that's my case. My dad's the greatest. He was in the first service. Like, growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was a baseball player, architect at some point, artist. But really, what it boiled down to is that at some point, I wanted to be a dad. And it's because my dad was amazing. I'm like, whatever that is, that's what I want to be. So some of us are living in that, like, just gratitude. Some of us are living in the brokenness of the reality that fatherhood is not what it should be in the current world we live in. There's death of a father, of a son, of a daughter. There's, in Christianity, it gives you space to lament. You don't have to celebrate and smile just because it's a holiday. You can lament. That's a very Christian thing to do. So some of you, that's where you're at. Some of us need more hope, like God can fix this thing that's broken. Whether it's my relationship with my dad, my relationship with my kids, God, the gospel... Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of salvation. It's this dynamite power to change people's lives. Some of you need to be reminded there's still hope. You don't have to give up. Keep praying that God would move. But all of us long for a father, like the perfect father. And Christianity offers us the fact that one day we get to spend eternity with the perfect heavenly father. With all of our shortcomings, all of our sin, all the reason why he should have left us outside, he brought us in close by sending his one and only son for us so that we can spend eternity. So Father's Day is a loaded thing. I get it. So I just want to give us a little space to just model what I think the Bible models to whatever emotion you're in, you need to express it. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just spend a moment of silence thanking or grieving. Father, thank you that you are our Father. Thank you that you taught us to pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. God, for us, us in this room that are sitting in uh, a season of life with our own fathers, or our own kids, that's not how we'd want it to be. God, be close by your presence, your comforting presence. For those of us that are longing for you to move in and restore, pray that you would do that. And for all of us, those of us who long for home, with our good and perfect Father. Uh, give us the endurance to keep on and give us real 
clear hope in what we get to look forward to with you for all eternity as your children. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. Well, now we get to look at Colossians. If you're new to redemption, uh, we just open up a book, generally open up a book of the Bible and just kind of take it piece by piece and walk through until we're done. So we're wrapping up Colossians pretty close here. We got two more weeks in Colossians. We'll look at the, I think two weeks. At the end of this month, we'll be done with Colossians. And then if you come in, whatever the next month is, July, we'll flip back over to 1 Samuel and we'll look at some Old Testament people, uh, these famous people, Solomon and David and Saul, these mighty men and kings who did great things and terrible things. We're going to spend a bunch of months looking at those guys. So that's what happens in July. But for now, we're in Colossians, which is a letter sent 2,000 years ago from this guy. Apostle Paul wrote it down and sent it to this little city, Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, given this little startup church, which is smaller than what we have going on in this room right now. Here's how the Christian life should look and feel. And we're particularly in this section for here's what it should look like for your home life. And specifically in this day and age, there was three relationships in each home. There was uh, wives and husbands, so we looked at wives a few weeks ago and husbands, your role. And then last week, children, parents, specifically fathers. Here's how you could mess this up, don't mess this up. And then today we jump in and we see bond servants and masters, which is sort of the working arrangement in that day and age. And now he's going to address, here's how you should think about work. But before we dive into learning from the Apostle Paul about what it means to work for us here and now, we have to do a little business here. Just go with me into verse 22 where Corinne just read, chapter 3, verse 22. I want to make a note, and then we're going to spend a little extra time on our introduction on this Father's Day. Verse 22, here's whose address, bondservants. We'll stop right there. The word is doulos. Everywhere else it's translated slave. So Paul is now addressing slaves, this church. Hey, slaves, here's how you need to think about this. And masters of the slaves, here's how you need to think about this. What makes us all more just God-ordained is today is Juneteenth, which is now a national holiday, which is the celebration of when the final set of slaves in our country heard about the Emancipation Proclamation, when slaves were legally declared to be free. January 1st, 1863, slavery is now illegal in this country. Two and a half years later, that verdict, that edict reaches Galveston, Texas, the furthest away. The Union soldiers bring, hey, all of you are free. And now we've made it a national holiday. Both President Trump and President Biden ran on this. I am going to make Juneteenth a holiday. So whoever you voted for, whether you're a guy or not, either guy was going to make this a national holiday. And now we're here on Juneteenth, and we're unpacking this little section where it addresses slaves. So I feel like we should do a little work to make sure we understand how this and our history of slavery sort of interact. And that's a big, people write PhDs on this. I'm going to give it about... 12 minutes to do my best. But here's sort of the question. Does this Bible condone slavery? In other words, does, did this help or hurt the cause of ending slavery in our country? Because that's, there's a lot of debates about slavery and all the, the Christian thing we need to think about is how did we play a role in this? How did our Bible get used or misused as we think about slavery? So as we do that, I just want to answer a few questions about bond servants. It's not, the, it's not one for one. The bond servants we're talking about in this section is different than slavery as we know it as far as Americans in our history with it. So I just want to kind of go through a few things just to show us the difference. Here's the first thing. Slavery in the Bible, America's forced slavery 
is a sin in the Bible no matter where you turn. So this is written about 80 years after Jesus, so about 2,000 years ago. If you go back to Exodus, God writes laws in about slavery long before Paul's writing this letter and long, long before America is starting chattel slavery, going to Africa and bringing slaves here as kidnapped property. So America's forced slavery is a sin in the Bible. Exodus 21, 16. Here's what Moses told his people. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that's exactly how slavery started in our country. That's how it kept going. It was stealing another man, stealing another woman, and bringing them where they did not want to go, kidnapping them. And from the beginning, the Bible said that is not allowed. So serious that they should be put to death. So the first ships, if God's justice was reigning as it should have been, there would have been people put to death who were trying to start this thing that became... American slavery for hundreds of years. And then fast forward to the New Testament. So Timothy is written after this. It's Paul writing to a young protege, a pastor in training, and he's writing this thing about who does not get to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Who is going to be removed? Understanding this, he says, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Those will not inherit the kingdom of God unless they repent, is what the gospel invites us to. Well, wherever you look in the Bible, never was American slavery as we know it. Okayed, given the thumbs up, encouraged. It was always, that is not the way we treat our fellow humans. Here's the second thing we see. Roman slavery was mostly voluntary. It was a far different system. So estimates differ, but they think 30% at least of the Roman population was slaves. So like a big chunk of, even in that church, what's interesting, the longest section written as we talk about husbands, wives, children, parents, and now slaves, masters, the longest chunk is given to slaves, bond servants, Probably because there were so many bond servants in the church, he wanted to make sure he was clear with his instruction for them. But it was voluntary. Most of it was you had a debt to society, and the way you paid off your debt was not with Bitcoin or cash or, hey, I'm going to an IOU. It's I am now your bond servant, and I will work for you this amount of time to pay off this amount of debt I have for you. It's equivalent to house mortgages, which I've got 26 years left. I'm currently a bond servant to some bank somewhere that says, if you don't pay, I'm coming for you. In those days, without all those systems in place, it was very sort of one-to-one. I'm going to come under you, and I'm going to be your bond servant because I owe you money. That's essentially what it was. And it was a lot of voluntarily selling yourself to pay off a debt. And just a lot of people think around 30 years old, most slaves were released. Like it wasn't like this for life thing and generational thing like it was in this country. It was a part of culture. Like nobody could fathom life without slavery. It'd be like if someone got up on stage, you know what we need to end? Lines of credit, which all of us have in some way, shape, or form. A credit card, a bank, a HELOC, whatever it is. Like, that's wrong. Roman would be like, end slavery? I don't, what do you, how's that even going to work? Like he owes me money. I owe him money. I'm his slave. I've got a slave to the slave. Like it's just a part of the economic process. One guy describes it like this. No one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept indentured labor in which labor was not free to market his skills to another employee was considered a given. Who are you? I belong to this person. 
for this amount of time until my death. So it was a different voluntary uh, sort of thing. Third thing, and here's the, the, there's a lot of big things, but this is a big, big thing. American slavery from its very origins was racist and was racist every step of the way. It was never a noble cause and it was racism from the get-go all the way through until it ended, until now as we deal with the leftover residue of having a racist sort of beginning. Roman slavery was not ethnic-based. You had slaves of every ethnic minority. You had this, you had this. Everybody had slaves. Every country had slaves. Every language group had slaves. It was across the board because it was economics. It was tied to how banking worked. And then fourthly, here's the big thing. If you go to the Bible and actually take it serious, the Bible raised the bar on the treatment of slaves for Rome, which we'll see here. And it helped spark an abolitionist movement in Europe and America, which is part of why we no longer have slaves, because people actually took the Bible serious. And they said, I think you're missing a lot. I think it says this. I think people should be treated this way. Just an examples, and it's not going to be on the screen, but the foundational, like, historical moment in the Old Testament, which Jesus points back to over and over again, is the Exodus. God rescuing his people, slaves, from Egypt. They were slaves, mistreated. It was an ethnic slavery. We have the Jews as the slaves, and they were rescued in the Exodus with the Passover, the Red Sea, this great redemptive moment. That's the moment of the Old Testament. And it's God rescuing slaves. It's a way to say, Look, that's what I do. So much so there was a slave Bible, which is a Bible given to slaves during American slavery, and there was a bunch missing for obvious reasons because we don't want people getting ideas. And a big chunk taken out of the Old Testament is the whole Exodus movement because we don't want people getting the idea that God rescues slaves. Other things you see is he writes all these laws into the Old Testament. Uh, killing a slave merited the death penalty. If you killed a slave, you would be killed as a way to say, hey, we're all equal. Permanently injured slaves had to be set free. If you injured a slave, you had to set them free, grant them freedom in the Old Testament. He warned them in Leviticus, do not rule over them ruthlessly, but you must fear the Lord. Parents were not allowed to sell their kids into slavery, especially sex slavery. And slaves, like every other human, were given Sabbath rest. Work six, take one off, give this to everyone. The slave, the free, the foreigner, the immigrant, give it to everyone. That's God's way of taking care of slaves. That's not how you treat them. Then the question is, how did it last so long, especially in a country that has Christian roots? How did these like fly parallel with each other? And we like, we can all kind of raise and start a class session. But here's sort of, here's what I wrote down. I'll boil it down to this. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Especially when power's involved, money's involved, and ethnic disparity and hatred is involved. I'm going to make it say, and so they made a slave Bible to say exactly what they wanted it to say. And now we're sitting here on Juneteenth, remembering that our country has not always taken this thing seriously. And even the Christians, God-fearing Christians, have not always dealt with this accordingly. It's a black mark, to say the least, on our country. However, as we go to this Bible, slavery in America and slavery in the Roman Empire were two different things. But I think God wanted both of them eradicated. I think he wanted neither to exist the way they did. One author says this about how God started to end slavery. John Stott, he's a British theologian. 
He says this about sort of Christians' indifference. We cannot defend the indolence or cowardice of Christian centuries. So we can't overlook the fact that Christians are to blame in some of this. However much you want, we, we can debate. But they saw this as a social evil, but they failed to eradicate it. We can at the same time rejoice that the gospel immediately begins, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion, which eventually destroyed it. How did slavery get ended? Because people took the gospel serious and God is faithful to deliver. That's what happened. But as we go, we can't just gloss over things. And as Christians, we have to do the hard work of like, okay, what's our role in all this? So I don't know where you land and how the last few years you've experienced talking about racial unrest and turmoil and conversations and heated conversations. Just, you know, the church has had a lot of conversations and we're not done yet. Here's my hope is that we'd always be a place that everyone could get invited to the table and be heard and seen and given value and listened to their story, not corrected, not coerced, not pushed away, but listened to so that we, the people of God, can actually look like Jesus here on earth with the time we have left on this earth. So as we go to this, that's our slavery sort of introduction. As we go to this and we read bondservant, it's slave a different form of slavery, a much more humane slavery than what we go to. But as we dive into this now, what Paul is doing is like, all right, slaves, here's how you should think about your work, and masters, here's how you should think about your work. What we're doing here now as we go and let the Apostle Paul speak to us is he's given us a new sort of performance review for how we view work. Like, how is Clayton doing at work? He works at Intel. He's an engineer. He, you know, does smart stuff. How is Clayton doing? Intel has a way to process and assess. Here's how Clayton's doing. Christianity gives us another way to say, how am I doing at work? In a world that is unfair, unjust, uneven, where cards are stacked against certain people in a lot of different ways, how am I doing as a Christian worker? That's what we want to do. The four S's that we need to assess our work with as we go to this section here. Here's the first one. They all start with S's. It's Father's Day. I wanted to make it simple and easy to remember. Sincere work. We have a new minimum requirement. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. How do I work when nobody is noticing? How do I work when nobody is noticing? Where do I get this verse? Verse 22, let's go look at it again. Chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, again, we talked about that. A big portion of this church, a big portion of the society back then. What are they told to do right out of the gate? Here's Paul's encouragement slash command. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. We'll stop right there. So first thing, you're sitting here, you're a bondservant, you owe this person another 25 years of your life. The guy who's writing the Bible as he speaks sends a letter, and the first thing is obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Not submit, not like the wife's call who gets equal voice, gets to speak in everything, but eventually has to yield on certain things. You are to obey in everything, period. And just so we don't, like, get too Western and clean with, slavery was still rough here. There's still abuse. There's still physical abuse, sexual abuse. There's still all sorts of inequalities, stuff that would make just our stomach turn. And Paul, right out of the gate, does not try to fix all the inequalities and all the injustice. He says, slaves, obey in everything. So if you think about you and your work, whatever that is, wherever you're under another person, Obey in everything. How are you doing in obeying in everything? That's what Paul says. Obey 
and everything. Here's what's beautiful here, though. What does he say? Obey in everything. Who does he tell us to obey? Those who are your earthly masters. So that's Paul's little dig now at the masters in the room. He says he qualifies masters with earthly. It means of the flesh. You must obey those who of the flesh currently are over you. It's his way to say, like, this is not permanent. This is not permanent ink. This is a temporary situation, but I want you to obey your masters of the flesh. Your for now boss, obey. His way to say, there's a forever boss, and he'll fix all this. But for now, obey your earthly boss. Obey in everything. How do you obey your earthly boss? Part of it is you remember, this is just my earthly boss. And not in a diminutive way, like, ah, they're nothing. But, like, there's a bigger story. In just trying to understand Juneteenth, a few friends have sent me some things. I watched this documentary and this one gal who's a historian in Galveston where all this started is asked, how was it that the slaves become free and then they get right back into churches and carry on with a faith that's similar, if not the same, as what their masters had as their How could you leave that and then enter back into this faith story with the same people that were just treating you so poorly? How? And she says, I think they knew there was a main character in the story and it was not the master and it was not the slave. It was God in heaven. It's her way to say, they were just earthly masters. God was writing a story. He was in charge. He was going to take care of it. We can obey because he is doing this. So obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Paul goes on to the sort of zero in and let us kind of get pinned against the wall and have to do some hard work. How does he qualify this? Right in the middle of verse 22, he says, here's what your work should look like. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So your work should not be of eye service, doing just enough so that your boss thinks you're doing a good job. Not just doing a good job when you're being watched, whatever that means in your remote work or your in-person work. Not just to kind of check off the box. You're not doing eye service work, and you're not doing people-pleasing work. You're not just doing work so that somebody is pleased with you for whatever motives in you or in them. Like Christians... So much of Christianity is this beautiful invitation to promises that I can't even fathom. And so much of Christianity is invitations into these challenging, impossible ways to live. I'm called to now work, and nothing about my work should be anywhere near being a veneer of the truth. I should present myself exactly as I am, and I want to raise your hand like that's nobody, but Christians are called to that. And he goes on even more. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And that's where I get the word sincere. Sincerity of heart. What does sincere mean? Like fully honest. Some people say it comes from Roman and Greek times when they made pottery sincere without wax. You would make these pots, and as you're making them, you would crack, you'd have an issue. It would not be perfect. So what you would do is you would cover them in wax and cover up the imperfections until you did not know that there was 46 cracks on this pottery you were going to the market to sell, and you would go and present. And sincere meant, hey, this is without wax. This is perfectly in line with what you think it is. What you see is what you get. And Paul's saying, with our work, what you see should be what you get. It should be sincere work. It should not just be when the boss is around. Like, I've had a lot of jobs where I would... A terrible employee. I was, my mom was my boss for the first four years of my life. Brutal. 
And I found every way to cut corners, to hide in the freezer. It was like cold, hot outside. I'm free. Like I've cut corners every way, shape, or form, but I wasn't a Christian then. And now I don't get to make any excuse. I need to go to the Word, and it says, hey, do your work with sincerity of heart. There should be no cracks, and there should be no covering of the cracks. Just, we all have cracks. Like, we're not going to, you know what? I think I'm the one that nailed this. Christianity invites you to be honest with your cracks, your flaws. Hey, in work, I'm not bringing my best. In whatever way you need to confess or repent, your work matters to God. He sees it. And is your work sincere? If not, that's an invitation for us to confess, God, I'm not living up to what you'd want. Maybe even taking it to a coworker, a boss, somebody to say, hey, I've been cutting corners here. I ask for your forgiveness. There'd be no greater witness in the workforce than Christians who were that honest with themselves and each other. And then what motivation does Paul give? Each time he gives a thing, here, do this. He always motivates vertically. He says, do it this way because, and at the end of verse 22, he says, fearing the Lord. What is our motivation? It's a fear of the Lord, which is a scary word. Like, what? I don't want my kids to fear me. But God all over the Bible says, fear me. And if you don't fear me, you don't even have knowledge yet because knowledge begins when you start fearing. What is fear of the Lord. Here's the best way I describe it to myself to make sense of it. It's just a hyper-awareness of God's presence in the moment. As I work, I've got to like tell myself God's present here. And it's not like he's mad. It's not he has a frowny face on. It's just, hey, God's here. I'm doing this in the fear of the Lord. I want to do well by my Father in heaven. So here's the question asked. How do I work when nobody is noticing? Are you giving sincere work? Here's the second thing we see, verse 23. Christians should also give soul work. What do I mean by that? We have a new passion for work. How much effort do I put into my work? Where do I get that from? Verse 23, whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do, stay-at-home moms, whatever you do, pastor, whatever you do, business person, whatever you do, radio, disc jockey, whatever you do, commercial real estate person, whatever you do, lawyer, whatever you do, nurse, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do. How should we do it? Paul says, work heartily. That word is fascinating because it actually means psyche. It's like where we get the word psychology. It's like Paul is trying to say work from your soul. Don't work like from a paycheck, for a paycheck. Work from your soul. Whatever you do, work from your soul. My wife and I talk about having a good tired versus a bad tired. Like when I do work and I, I go do an event or I go speak somewhere or I Teach on a Sunday, she will ask me, are you a good tired? Which means, like, did I give it everything I have? And am I, like, dog tired after, but like a, all right, I can sleep now. I need to sleep now because I'm dog tired. Is, it a, is that how work feels to you? Like, do you work and then you're tired? Now, if I say you're never tired, I'd just say, you're probably younger than I, A. And B, you might not be working from your whole soul. Like, work should be hard. I listen to this podcast, a business guy, Patrick Lencioni. He, it's called the, the Tension of Dignity. So Patrick Lencioni is probably in his 60s. He just consults businesses. Um, and he's talking about work environments these days. And you have to manage two ten- attention as a boss, as a person creating culture and work. And it's dignity of each of your employees and the performance of each of your employees. And his point was, when I got into the workforce, not me, Patrick, he's in his 60s. All people cared about was your performance. Who cares what your name is? I don't care what you, I don't care anything about you. 
you have a job to do. Here's your job description. Here much you, you'll get paid. He's like, it was all performance, performance, performance. He's like, and then it swung. And now we're all about dignity. And he's like, this isn't even just a faith thing. Non-Christians, everyone's on the dignity train. We want people to be seen. We don't want any unsafe spaces. We've got to say everything. So everyone is like wonderfully seen and cared for and taken care of in the workforce. So dignity, dignity, dignity. His point was, I just think the pendulum needs to come back a little bit. Now, you can agree or disagree. As a Christian, I would just tell you, as you think about you and your work, are you, like, actually performing fully for your job, for your boss? Are you working from the heart? And I think if you're in your younger years, you're learning what work feels like. It's like, how tired should I be? Well, I yawned after work, so I think I'm, it's time to look for a new job. Oh, <laughs> It's like, it takes some time. You're 26, you're not going to know if you're actually like working as hard as you can. Like right now, if you had to assess yourself, zero to 100%, I don't believe anything over 100% actually is a thing. Like, I give 110%. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) But like, my work ethic right now, what am I at? 70%? I got to talk with my board just about, you know, how I'm doing. And part of it was like, how do you assess how you're doing in this sort of open field of church planning where you just run around all over it like, how do I, but for you, are you working 100%, 90%, 80%, 70%? And take it to the Lord and say, God, I want to work with my whole heart for you. And what's the motivation? Again, what does Paul say? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Just remind yourself, I am doing this for the Lord. I am doing this for the Lord. Stay at home mom, I am doing this for the Lord. And nobody is going to get that right, and nobody is going to remind themselves enough. But we all need to just stop from time to time and be like, this is for the Lord, not for this. I want to love these people, care for these people, but I'm doing this primarily for an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing we see here is sober work. What do I mean by that? We have a new performance review. How will God view my work when it's all said and done? Sober, I don't mean don't be drunk. That's a good idea when you go to work. I mean sober-minded as you think about your last day of employment, your last day on earth, the day you meet Jesus. Your work life is a third of your life, give or take. Are you taking that part of your life into account when you think about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ? And not in a, your eternal destiny is on the line, heaven or hell. Because Christianity teaches you are 100% rescued by Jesus' work, period. But you are 100% going to give an account for 100% of your life one day before you, when you stand before Jesus. And your work life is for sure involved in that. Are you thinking about that? Here's how Paul would tell the church in Colossae to think about it. Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Stop right there. First of all, he says there is an inheritance coming, and it's all in the context of work. So we just, and he's talking to slaves who don't have an inheritance, don't have a Roman inheritance, they're not part of the inheritance system, and he's saying, hey, slaves, you at the bottom of the total, just know you have a great inheritance awaiting for you based off the work you're gonna do. Jesus Christ seals our destiny, and now we get to work hard for him. I just want to take us over. I don't do this often because uh, it always drove me nuts when I was first in church. Like, they flopped around the Bible too much. I always got lost. But would you flop over to Matthew 25? Just 
I just want to let Jesus' words sober us up a little bit as we think about our life, specifically our work life. So Jesus walks around, he speaks in all these different forms. One of the forms is parables, and mostly the fair parables are get to get us thinking about beyond this world in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, he tells this parable. It's a famous parable. If you've been around church, it's about talents, which is like resources. I'm giving you these talents. So the master comes, gives Genesee this much to do, Aubrey this much to do, Josh this much to do, Asher this much to do. And then this is how this is going to end. Translation, this is at the end of all things, this is what it's going to feel like to see God and have him look through our work life. Go down to verse 19. Here's what Jesus says. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, but here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Beautiful. Next guy. Or girl. And he also had the two talents. He who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master similarly said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, final person. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid that talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. If you thought that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. Take this talent from him and give it to the others with 10 talents. Done with the story. What's Jesus' point? We have all been given a certain amount of stuff in this life. And it's more than just money. It's gifting, it's talents, it's resources. It's, I've put you on earth to do a job. He didn't just drop a bunch of humans on this world who were going to run around bumping into each other, sinning, and then send Jesus to save, and then we get to just wait and sing. No, we're here to do work. And he says, it's like giving you talents, and one day I'm going to come back and see how you're doing. And you need to return back to me with what you've been given. Paul says it this way, there is an inheritance as your reward. That should be freeing for the Christian. That should be encouraging. That should be motivating for the Christian that my work matters. There's no qualification on the job that's included in this. He's talking to the lowest level of civilization in the Roman Empire. Anyone in here, whatever job you have, there is an inheritance as your reward. Stay faithful, and he will one day say, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my presence. But he also says, verse 25, for the wrongdoer, you'll be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. How we work and how we treat others in our work, how we run companies matters, and there will be no partiality when it's all said and done. Like even think about this in terms of bond servants and slaves and just trying to make sure I understand all the context and reading about slavery in the slave Bible, this Bible that has all this stuff ripped out. The end of the Bible, Revelation says, if you take anything out of this Bible, just know all the plagues in this Bible are coming for you. And then there's people who create a slave Bible to keep people enslaved and to give them the word of God as a way to keep power over them. Paul says, hey, whatever form of injustice you're in right now, 
whether it's as bad as slavery in America or it's the worst boss you've ever had, he is going to come back and he's going to pay people for the wrong done, and that includes especially the work. There is no partiality. So sober-minded Christians, we get to look ahead with hope that he is going to reward us. We also get to sit and know that God is going to pay back. He is the ultimate judge. There is no partiality. We all have a variety of rough work situations. And it's not like we sit in the desk Monday morning like, well, hell's coming for that guy. I hope you enjoy hell, boss. It's more like I don't have to have the pressure on me to do all the work that God promised to do in making all things right and suddenly it counts like they need to be. We can work sober-mindedly. And then finally, just to keep an S in here, I, may, I didn't make this up. I thought, well, you know, what am I trying to say here? Square deal work. Here's what it is. We have a new scope for our work. How just and fair is my work? What do I mean by square deal? I thought, I was thinking, what is an S? I'm like, oh, it's like a square deal. I'm like, why have I heard square deal? That's such an old guy statement. I'm like, what is square deal? And it's an old line. Teddy Roosevelt, one of our former presidents, created the square deal in a time very much like this. Corporations kept getting bigger. Small companies get, get purchased. All the corporations get bigger. Customers and employees are not being treated properly. And at the same time, Teddy's worried about the environment and what we're doing to it. So he creates these three C's. Conservatism. We want to make sure nature is not overrun as we chase profit. Companies, corporations need to be regulated. We need to keep them in check. We need to make sure they are providing fair and just policies for their employees and customers. And we want to protect the rights of customers. Kids who are working, we want to provide safe. What's a square deal? Paul says it this way. Masters. He turns his attention. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. People that divided the Bible up later did this. I don't agree with them, but they didn't ask me. Here's how chapter 4, verse 1. It all goes with the previous statement. Now he turns and he says, all right, masters, which would be the minority in this church setting. Masters, now treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, anyone in this room that has power over someone else, is a boss over someone else, has the ability to write and sign someone's paycheck, Treat them justly and fairly. Justice is righteousness, same word. The way God wants this world to work, treat them with justice. And fairly just means with equality. And make sure you have like eyes for each person. Now, if you have a thousand employees, I don't mean know every person's name, but treat every person with dignity, whoever they are, with justice and fairness. Now, how are we doing with treating people with justice and fairness? Especially like me, I get, I mean, this is not a huge organization, but we have employees already at this church. Am I treating people with justice and fairness? Are you, those of you who have companies, those of you that are bosses, managers, how does Christianity shape how you see and think about your work in the environment you get to create? I wrote down just a few as I thought about what does it mean to be just and fair? Here's one, two questions I have. What systematic sins seem to be in your system. What systematic sins... So I was a teacher prior to this. And education in America is great, and we've got a lot of great teachers working real hard, but there are some, like, deficiencies built into the system. And it's not like you can point, well, this person's the person to blame. It's just like certain people are not getting treated properly. What's this... And it's not to say... Now I can go fix that, but just at least being aware as a Christian of where is this not just and fair? The other thing I have is who is not being protected in your system? Like what customers get hosed because of how it's set up for you? 
I, have time. I got a little time. I, the medical profession, if you're in the medical profession, God bless you. If you're in billing, I don't know if you're invited into this church anymore. <laughs> but like all of our ability to kind of get ahead in life financially has always been thwarted by medical bills, mainly having kids. And like C-sections and all, it's like, what? He costs that much? All right, we'll take them. <laughs> but I remember being on the phone with medical bills like, ma'am, you really think this is fair? She's like, sir, this is above my pay grade. I said, ma'am, you're going to die one day. You're going to face judgment. She's like, sir, I think this conversation has ran its course. (laughs) My point to her and to all of us, to the best of your ability in the vein that God has placed you, are you providing fairness and justice? Only God can ultimately bring ultimate justice and let it rain down. But our job as Christian workers is to be fair and just, not profitable just and fair, and if so, profitable and successful. But we are to be just and fair as Christian workers. What is the motivation he gives to masters and bosses in this room? He says, you also have a master in heaven. It's his way to like level the playing field. Just so you know, I know Roman culture right now says they're the slaves and you're the masters and you're kind of higher on the totem pole. Just know, as we leave this place, as we sit here, we all have one master in heaven and you are serving him people who get to provide services for other. That's our four S's. Are you working well as a Christian? And now here's what we get to do. We get to be reminded of the gospel, even as I think about this setting. This setting in this church is read out loud. The slaves hear this. The masters hear this. And then what are they going to do at the end of church service? Probably what we do. They take the Lord's Supper together as a way to say, work seems like the ultimate way to size people up. In Rome, and especially in America, like, what do you do? Becomes the ultimate question of your identity and your significance. That is not true in Christianity. Who do you belong to is the most important. And we all, by faith, get to say, Jesus Christ. My worth is not in how well I do as a pastor, how well this church does. Jansen's worth is not in how well she does. Ken's worth is not in how well he does. We want to do well. We want to provide. We want to do all that. But our worth is in the fact that he is our master, and he's come down to be close with us. And the closeness only happened because of his blood shed on a cross to bring us close to him, our master. And that's what we get to celebrate now in communion. Let's pray together. Prepare. Father, Thank you that you just see it all, that you speak into it all. There's not one area of life where we are left wondering what you think. So thank you for giving us a theology of work throughout the scriptures, starting in Genesis, as you set Adam and Eve on a path to subdue and cultivate and to create. And then by our own choice and our own sin, we've made that extremely difficult. And now the ground itself works against us and thorns and thistles are a part of our routine. Yet that hardness and that difficulty in work does not stop your desire for us. You tell us to work hard, to have sincere work, to work with all of our might, all of our soul, to tie our work to the end of time and to think often of you coming back and what it's going to be like to present our work to you. And God, you tell us as Christians, we are uniquely positioned and gifted to provide justice and fairness in a world that forgets those too often. 
So God, this is a big task. This is a task we're all going to spend our whole work life trying to figure out. A lot of us wondering if we're doing a good job. So I pray by your spirit you would encourage those who need encouragement that they are on the right path. Those of us who need an awakening, those of us who are slothful and lazy, disrespectful, dishonoring, not good workers, I pray your spirit would grab us, correct us, lead us into confession and repentance. God, for all of us, ultimately we want to see you as our one master. We don't want to be a place where we get sized up based off the work or the dignity in the work that we've chosen. We want to be a church that sits under one master, and we're all here to serve you. So I pray that would happen even more because of our time spent. Peace and my prayer. Amen.